for future economic trends. This is BizTalk. Extreme weather, COVID-19 variants, and inflation dominated the news in 2021. Despite many disappointments, many accomplishments were also made. There's a growing awareness that there's some really important problems where we have common interests. The majority of 2021 witnessed tension between China and the U.S. How can we avoid competition veering into conflict? The old rules are not adapt to the era that we're in. We have to rewrite those rules. Still, glimmers of light were seen on China-U.S. cooperation when the two sides issued a joint statement on climate change. That means economic rationality still working. What could be the impetus for economic growth in 2022? Fiscal support and monetary support will be developed as 2021 comes to a close. Join us this week as we recap the year and look ahead to 2022 in China-U.S. economic ties with two world-renowned economists. Only on BizTalk. Only on CGTN. Hello and welcome to this edition of BizTalk. I'm Guanxing in Beijing. It's been a tumultuous year for China-U.S. relations. Although tensions remain high between the two countries for most of 2021, things improved in November with a virtual meeting between top leaders. How should the two countries build on the momentum to address common challenges such as the Omicron variant, inflation, and climate change, and avoid competition from veering into conflict? To delve into these issues, it's an honor and pleasure to be joined by two renowned economists from both countries: Professor Michael Spence from New York University, a Nobel laureate in economics, and Professor Justin Ling, dean of the Institute of New Structural Economics of Peking University. Welcome to the show, and thank you both for your time today. Good to be with you, Professor Ling and Professor Spence. Would you please use one word to describe the year of 2021, and what's the outlook of world economy next year? I would use the word roller coaster. Oh, I use the world depression. Would you please elaborate, Professor Spence? You first. In the first part of the year, I thought you know China had successfully contained the virus. We were in a very rapid recovery. The United States and、uh, and the developed countries had a vaccine rollout. It was starting to gain momentum more broadly in middle-income countries, and so I thought we were you know on the way to recovery. And then the second half of the year arrived with the Delta variant, you know, huge negative climate events,、uh, supply chains clogged up, and a whole lot of other things that felt like, you know, a roller coaster. We're up, we're down, we're up, we're down. So、mm-hmm. that's how it felt to me. What about next year? Next year, I'm, you know, somewhat more optimistic. I mean, I think there's a, a reasonable chance that we'll get the virus under control and move on to some really important areas of、uh, of cooperation. I think there's a growing awareness that there's some really important problems and issues to challenge、uh, where we have common interests. You know, we have an inequality problem. Common prosperity is an important idea. There's a long list of areas where we have common problems and could benefit from cooperating with each other and solving them. Indeed, it's very important to build consensus and work together. And Professor Ling, the pandemic has lasted much longer than we expected. And it has been almost two years now,、right. and、uh, we are still under you know, new threat and so on, like Omicron. And、uh, because of this concern,、uh, you know, the economy has been affected, the life has been affected much longer, much severe. I think that our mobility was severely restricted, and、uh, as well as the economy, you know, 
was affected negatively in most parts of the world. So I think the overall, uh, I think it's quite depressive. What about your outlook for next year? Are you also optimistic? I think that there's a good chance to improve because now we understand the threat of this pandemic much better. And the willingness to cooperate, I think, will be enhanced. Both because of the high-income country, they have basically vaccinated all their population, and they also have the capacity to produce vaccination for the developing country. And we also see facing these kind of global challenges unless we cooperate and uh, left no one behind, otherwise the threat will be there. And uh, also, you know, like the US and China, in the last year, the tension was quite, you know, in a way getting worse. But at the end of the year, we see the virtual meeting between the president of both sides. And we also was able to sign joint statement for the climate changes. So there's some good sign for next year and I hope this momentum will be maintained. In your opinion, what will drive China's economic growth next year? I think that this year certainly we face some kind of face, some kind of downward pressure. It's real. And uh, certainly there are reasons for that. The pandemic, the precaution of the pandemic, that certainly affect the production and also the consumption pattern that put a downward pressure. And uh, secondly, the Chinese government, you know, in the first quarters, because the growth rate seemed to be so robust, and it gets some room for China to implement some policy which would be desirable for the long term. For example, to you know control the likely bubble in the real estate state, uh, real estate sectors, and also to you know advocate the carbon neutrality, carbon pick, and that policy for that that would be desirable for the long term. But at the same time, I think the implementation seems to be need to have some kind of coordination. If you put all those long-term desirable policy and implement that simultaneously, immediately, certainly it's going to have a negative impact on the short-term economic uh, uh, growth. And that kind of negative impact may affect people's confidence. We need to you know, have a good implementation strategy about how to carry out those kind of long-term goals. And next year, I think that you know, some kind of government support in terms of fiscal support and monetary support for the investment in the infrastructure for the investment in the provision of public housing and in the investment in the new type of infrastructure, for example, 5G and so on, that will be desirable. China proposes steps to guarantee macroeconomic stability in 2022 during the annual Central Economic Work Conference in December 2021. A statement issued following the meeting said that the Chinese economy is under three types of pressure, including declining demand, supply shocks, and weakening outlook. It emphasized that proactive fiscal policies, prudent monetary policies, and efforts to smooth domestic circulation while achieving common prosperity would be the economic work priorities for the coming year. So, Professor Spence, what do you think about China's growth potential? China's growth potential is very high in terms of innovation, uh, you know, 
technology, it's a powerhouse. But I agree with Justin. If you have a lot of long-term agenda items, don't try to do them all at once uh, in a very short period of time. So I think, you know, there's some headwinds. You know, one of the things that as an outsider fascinates me is this challenge in the financial sector, and this affects real estate, of uh, preventing a kind of systemic problem, which they can clearly do. They know what they're doing and they have the resources to do it, but they also want to want to encourage responsible behavior with respect to things like debt uh, and so on. So they're trying to thread a needle. If you look at this, you know, there's headwinds uh, that are going to persist well into next year. Coming up next, the relationship between China and U.S. deteriorated for most of 2021. What is the cost of an unhealthy bilateral relationship? We're not getting along on getting on with the areas of cooperation where there's benefits to everybody else. What should be done to avoid teetering on the brink of decoupling? Hope that the U.S. will come into more rational understanding about the need to have a cooperation. COVID-19 changed the world forever. For a moment, COVID-19 appeared to be in a rearview mirror. However, new variants pose new threats to humanity. As a result of the pandemic, supply chain became a household name in 2021. Consumer demand skyrocketed as vaccines became accessible. Companies found themselves short on parts and supplies. The lack of shipping containers and bottlenecks at the ports throughout the world exacerbated the situation. Shortages of chips, food, gasoline and human labor concentrated global attention. Supply chain disruptions then contributed to a global spike in inflation with rates soaring. People are in a panic about where inflation might go in 2022. We know that two years on since the pandemic, the world economy is still not out of woods and new coronavirus variants, as you mentioned, and also complicated by supply chain crisis, inflation, and these challenges still could still derail nascent recovery. So what can be done to facilitate world economic recovery, especially by China and the U.S., the world's two largest economies? Professor Spence? Well, the, uh, item one we've already talked about, which is get rid of the pandemic. So at least its contribution to kind of continuing problems in the supply chain, like closing ports, like, you know, shutting down certain manufacturing facilities, you know, etc. Beyond that, I think it's going to take a while for the supply chains to get uncongested. Um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, well, we're going to solve this problem in the longer run by sort of doing everything ourselves, you know, the self-sufficiency argument. But that's not really the answer. The answer is that the supply chains were wound too tightly. The pandemic made it worse because everybody in the supply chains went into survival mode. Where we need to cooperate is in finding ways to make the global supply chains that we're all dependent on less prone to adverse shocks, meaning less able to adapt to big shocks like this. Look, if, if you look at these global supply chains and networks, they're constructed in a highly decentralized way. The emphasis on efficiency, and we have no visibility. There's nobody on the earth who can see the whole the whole picture. It's, there's just no database that allows you to do that. We can create incentives for resilience and capacity to absorb shocks, and we can cooperate on creating data that allows us to detect early detect when this system is, is starting to get under stress. We had accommodative monetary policy, huge fiscal programs, 
to buffer the shock and now to build infrastructure, which we desperately need. And then we had built up savings accounts and pent up, pent up demand. I mean, everybody on the planet knew we were going to have a demand surge and the supply chains, you know, can't keep up with it, even if it's optimally managed. And I think the central banks are in a very tough position, right? Because their credibility depends on dealing with inflation, but they really don't want to bring demand and supply back into balance by knocking the demand down, which they can do by raising the interest rates. But I think they're going to start to do is they've been beaten up um, to the point that they're going to start reacting to the inflation. Professor Ling, we know that China's monetary policy seems to be more independent. What do you think about the spillover effects from United States and other countries? Next year, we will face downward pressure. So under this kind of situation, certainly we need to have more expansionary fiscal policy and also flexible monetary policy. Overall, as you know, most other countries, they have the zero interest rate or even negative interest yeah. rate. But China's interest rate is still quite high. The interest rate is about 4%, mm -hmm. among the highest in the world. And I think there's some room for lowering down the interest rate. Similar to the reserve ratio, China's reserve ratio is still quite high according to the international standard. So I think the monetary policy still has some room to you know, adjust according to the needs of the Chinese economy. It's almost a year since President Biden took office, but some of the administration still lacks a clear policy regarding China-U.S. trade relations, and most of the trade policies are inherited from the Trump era. Despite criticism that high tariffs exacerbated supply chain crisis and further fueled inflation, so Professor Spence, what is your take on that? I think the foreign policy agenda in the United States has shifted from some kind of balance between national security and economic agendas to almost entirely driven by some version of national security. As a result of that, you know, there's been inattention to the economic agenda on the part on the American side. And I think the cost of that is, you know, we're not getting along on getting on with the areas of cooperation where there's clearly mutual, not only mutual benefits, but benefits to everybody else in the world as well. So that's that's kind of my take on, on what's going on. And unfortunately, at least in Washington, this shift to focusing on, you know, strategic competition as opposed to a better balance between strategic competition and strategic cooperation is a, a view that's shared on both sides of the political spectrum, Republican and Democrat. The question is, can we shift that balance back in the direction of a more sensible, you know, balancing of the our economic interests and our security concerns. Professor Lin, do you think the two sides should start talking again on this issue? How should the two sides engage? First, I hope people <coughs> will learn from the experiences. And uh, because we know that the tariff rate on the China's export to the U.S. does not help the U.S. at all. At the beginning, they hope this tariff will help to bring the job back to the U.S. And after then show, it did not occur. And uh, this tariff only raised, uh, you know, the cost of uh, goods that the U.S. buy, no matter it's from the U.S., uh, from China, brought from other country, And that put on an inflationary pressure on the U.S. But if the inflation cannot be really managed, either the Federal Reserve will lose its credibility, and it's not good for the U.S. in the long run. And uh, if the U.S. want to 
you know, the Federal Reserve want to control the inflation rate, they may have to you know, introduce the tapering. And if they did not manage that well, that may cause some kind of financial crisis. And certainly that's not good for the U.S. and also for the world. So I hope that the U.S. will learn some kind of lesson from the experiences in the past few years and come into more rational understanding about the need to have a cooperation between China and the U.S. and for the world. The China-U.S. trade war that started in 2018 has been shown to have lost 245,000 jobs in the United States, while tariff reductions could create 145,000 jobs by 2025, according to U.S.-China Business Council. Furthermore, Oxford Economics anticipates that a significant decoupling of the economies would cut the U.S. GDP by 1.6 trillion U.S. dollars over the next five years. Thus, as the Omicron variant poses a severe danger to the world economy, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen commented on U.S. lowering tariffs on Chinese products to help solve U.S. inflation issues. That's another encouraging indication for U.S.-China trade ties after the virtual meeting between U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Calls for removing tariffs echoed across the Pacific. Since the politics between the two sides really complicating the issue, well, the United States and China are profoundly at odds on how economies should be governed. So what do you think about the differences, Professor Spence? I think there are inaccurate and unhelpful views on both sides. Uh, you know, on the American side, uh, the view, you know, is that China is sort of aggressively trying to expand its influence um, in multiple dimensions. There's lots of people who, A, don't understand governance, uh, the relationship between the state and the economy in China, because they don't understand it. They think China, you know, because the state presence is, uh, is you know, an important factor in the, in the growth and development in China. They kind of think they're cheating because the system's different from ours, etc. Meanwhile, we're sitting there in a relatively polarized uh, situation in the society. And so you shift over to the Chinese side and there's a view in China that the American system is failing, you know, which I think is probably a little premature at least, and so on. So the simplest way to sum this up is there is not a single right way to govern a country, right? We have different values and different cultures and different institutions, and there's probably lots of different ways to get the job done. And I think if we were, if we want to move to a more healthy kind of relationship, you know, probably one of the most important propositions to accept is that China's found a very successful way to run its uh, economy. Uh, and the United States one is, while we all have ups and downs, has been reasonably successful and just accept <laughs> that we're different. And Professor Ling, what do you think about the misunderstanding about China's system uh, mentioned by Professor Spence? I think overall, the Chinese governance, certainly it's different from the textbook we were taught. Those kind of neoliberalism, those kind of you know, trust on the market and to think any government intervention is wrong. Certainly China is different from that. But if different that is bad, China economic performance will be very poor. China will be punished. You know, other country doesn't have to say you have a wrong policy and so on because economic performance will policy mistake by itself. But overall, as you know, Chinese economy grow dynamically. Chinese, you know, avoid any kind of systematic 
crises, and so on. That overall, the policy in China should be considered as working well. And not only in China. If you look into the reality in other countries, in the U.S. or in the European country, you know, actually the economic governance relies both on market and the government, right? In reality, the economic operations, you know, are governed by the similar in a governance structure. You need to have the market, and you also need to have a government to compensate the market value and so on. Coming up next. China and U.S. released a joint statement at COP26 to tackle climate change. What does that signify for the world? The United States and China got together. It was a major step forward, and I hope it sticks. In which areas should they continue to collaborate? Pandemic is one issue. Poverty are the issue. The world economy as we know it is about to change. Global business reports highlight emerging markets, developing countries, and dynamic sectors worldwide. We feature top analysts and newsmakers to provide perspectives on every facet of business. From an on-the-ground perspective, we provide you with balanced and objective assessments, fast, sharp, and insightful. Global business, only on CGTN. Now, the COP26 conference in November, the United States and China issued joint statement in which they pledged to cooperate on fighting climate change. How should the two sides build on such momentum, Professor Spence? First of all, I, I think there's some technology、um, that we need to kind of complete the journey to a, a kind of stable, sustainable global economy. Let me call them solutions. It's some, it's, it's technology, it's mechanisms, it's incentive structures. We need to have them flow frictionlessly, you know, freely and frictionlessly, you know, all over the world. Both countries are going to be major sources of this. Also, Europe, the free flow of technology. We need to get just remove them、uh, when it comes to anything related to sustainability and climate change,、um, or we're just not going to get there. And the second thing is, I wish the United States was making more progress, same way China is in putting a price on carbon. And having carbon trading systems, China's carbon emissions are going to peak before 2030, which is a very important milestone in this journey.、Um, and so that's a major achievement by itself. If we accelerate that, then I think we'll have done at least one piece of the puzzle well. Just the simple fact that the United States and China got together and and were part of the agreement to attack this problem aggressively is just it by itself. Is enormously important because if if either the United States or China drops out and says we're not interested in this, you can't solve the problem. It's completely demotivating for the for everybody else in the world to participate in the process of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. That was a major step forward, I think, and I, you know, and I hope it sticks. Well, carbon reduction target is key to China's long-term development. Professor Lin, what do you think about the、uh, the potential of China-U.S. cooperation in this area? As you can see, China committed to its policy towards carbon neutrality, although the cost for China is substantially high because China reached the carbon peak much later than other countries. But China want to, you know, achieve carbon neutrality. That means China need to double the effort compared to other country, but、uh, I think it's a good thing because climate change is a global challenges. The Chinese effort will contribute to the global efforts, and we have so many other global challenges. Pandemic is one issue, 
property are the issue, terrorism also a big challenge to the world, and uh, how to help the developing country to really to achieve the SDGs so they can address the issue of poverty, hunger, and also you know have the means to cope with the global other global challenges. I think all those kind of things require cooperation. And it gives me a little bit of confidence. If under this tension, but we can still come to a joint statement related to the climate change. That means economic rationality still working. And I hope build on that, for example, pandemic, maybe the next one we can have some kind of joint efforts. And then other issues like poverty, like to help the developing country build the infrastructure, paving the foundation for their growth and job generation. And by that, maybe we can understand, understand each other's motivation better. While things improved a bit in November, but took another turn for the worse since in December, what's your view about evolving China-U.S. relations and impact on the future of world economy, Professor Spence? That's a very big subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are significant costs, including to other countries, if we continue down the road that we've been on. The old rules of the, the road you know, let, let's call it in the pre-digital era, we're not particularly adapted to the era that we're in. We have to rewrite those rules. We're not really getting on with it now. Professor Ling, do you see a bigger risk of decoupling? There are so many challenges in the world that require cooperation in the world, especially the U.S. and China, because we are the number one economies and the number two economies, and we are the foundation of the global you know, economy and the governance. And so it's a pity to see the tension rising, but unfortunately it might be a fact of our life because the tension part related to the rise of China, and certainly China has the right to continue to grow our economy in order to improve the different standard and the well-being of the people. And because we have 1.4 billion population, if the income level in China continues to rise, the economic size of the Chinese economy uh, and its weight on the global economy will increase. That's something we cannot you know, avoid. And, and uh, if the U.S. see this as a threat to its power, so under this kind of situation, I think the tension will be there for some time. But hopefully through the you know, dialogue between you know, intellectuals and also the policy communities, we can improve understanding of each other's intention. Mm-hmm. And I hope the rationality will prevail. Indeed. Well, China-U.S. cooperation is a very positive sign, and that gives us a much-needed optimism uh, for new beginnings, new hopes for the next year. Well, we have to leave it there. Thanks again for sharing with us Professor Michael Spence from NYU and Professor Justin Ling from Peking University. And that's all for this edition of BizTalk on CGTN. I'm Guanxin in Beijing. Thanks for being with us. Until next time, bye for now.